Welcome to the IC Disc Show. Interviews with business owners, industry leaders, and tax experts sharing how the IC Disc can benefit your bottom line profits. Check out the show notes at icdiscshow.com. This show is brought to you by the IC Disc Alliance. Discover how the premier IC Disc consulting firms support you at icdisc.com. And by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Hi, this is David Spray, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. My guest today is Brett Eckert, the CEO of United Metals Recycling in Idaho. Brett has a really interesting perspective on what is seemingly a commodity business, the scrap metal business. Rather, he views himself as being in the customer service business. Because of that underlying philosophy, he's innovated and created some new products and services that I'm not familiar with in the scrap metal business that I found to be very interesting. Brett has also had a podcast for a number of years where he interviews people in the scrap metal business. And it really is a great insight and perspective, not only on having a podcast, but also on the scrap metal industry. So whether you're interested in having your own podcast or you're in the scrap metal business, there's a lot of good information to be had. Now let's get to the episode. Hi, Brett. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Are you calling in uh, from Idaho? Are you in Idaho today? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. In Idaho, and then I think the travel whirlwind starts here soon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think few months. It sounds like we'll both be in Las Vegas uh, in a couple weeks for the ISRI conference, correct? Yes, for the Institute yes. of Scrap Recycling Industries uh, annual convention. I think that's the official name of it. Yep, yep. First one they've had in person for a couple of years now. They took two years off because of COVID, and now I think everybody's pretty excited to get back together. Yeah, I, I agree. I was at the Consumers Night in St. Louis last month, and that was just, a, I think, a record turnout. There was a lot of pent-up demand. So so I want to talk about two things two primary categories. One, I want to kind of get your story here, a bit about your background, a bit about your company. And then the second part, I want to talk about your podcast and uh, kind of lessons learned why you started it, things like that. Does that sound like okay. a good plan? Sounds, sounds good to me. All right. Well, let's start at the beginning. Are you a native of Idaho? Born and raised. My parents are both born and raised from Idaho. Grandparents, you know, for the most part, are all from Idaho. So, yeah, I don't know any. I don't know any different. I grew up in Idaho, um, around the Boise area, in a town called Caldwell, and uh, went to school. Got my undergraduate um, in Oregon, and then came back and went to work. And somewhere along the way, you picked up your MBA at the University of Phoenix, right? Yes, sir. At night, I basically came back to work, started working full time. I graduated on Saturday. My parents came up to uh, watch the graduation. Nobody in my family had ever graduated. Nobody in my family, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, nobody had ever even went to college. So so I was the first person in my family to even go to college, let alone graduate. So it was a pretty big deal 
for my family. They came up, watched the ceremony, and that was on a Saturday. And I was kind of half-assed joking to my dad, hey, when are you ready for me to start? And he goes, Monday would be fine. And he wasn't joking. So <laughs> <laughs> that is so Monday, that is Monday. Monday it was. We went to work. So I didn't realize this, but you and I have something in common. So two things. One is I'm from one of those other states that starts with an I called Iowa. And I'm sure for folks that, you know, like from the East, you know, they seem to get those states confused, right? You know, it's like they think of them as both kind of back backwards, you know, rural, unsophisticated, and they both start with an I and with a vowel. So they seem to get them confused. But the other thing I have in common like you, I also was the first person in my family, immediate family, extended family, to go to college as well. And like you, I have a, a bachelor's degree and I have an MBA. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. And congratulations to you. It's Being a trailblazer is not always the easiest uh, role, is it? No, no. But you know what? Like, I'm happy I did it. And people used to ask me all the time, well, you, why are you going back to school? You already know what you're going to do. And yeah. And I'm just kind of, I don't know, I guess this maybe has been born into me. I just part of my DNA that I just, I have a hard time half-assing stuff. So it's like, I, if, if I, somebody tells me I can't do something, like I'm going to try and prove them wrong. Or B, if someone says, oh, that's good enough. I'm like, well, what's good enough? You know, like, I'm like the one that I want to go extra, you know, I want right. to do a little bit more than the, you know, what's good enough. So I think that's the reason why I don't think I necessarily need an MBA to do what I do, but, you know, it was part of my process. Understood. So talk to me a bit about the company. You know, I came back, I graduated school in 2004. My grand, I'll kind of rewind a little bit. My grandfather started our business in 72 with a partner, just a kind of a little hole in the wall, scrap recycling company, scrap metal recycling, very family owned, operated business throughout, you know, my dad's younger years, high school years. You know, my dad, lucky to even graduate high school. He worked the business pretty much his whole life with my grandfather. And about 1997, my dad was, my grandfather was ready to retire or my dad was ready to retire. My grandfather, they had enough, <laughs> I think, of each other. Yeah. And, you know, they been, had been working, you know, together as a family, aunts, uncles, cousins, anybody that could, would want to come to work because it's hard, you know, it's a hard job. It was maybe 20 employees, a couple of mm-hmm. trucks. Just a very, you know, labor intense, uh, gritty gig, you know, one location. And my dad being an entrepreneur, that he was able to find a way to get my grandfather bought out of the business by partnering with a uh, company, you know, a publicly traded company now that's pretty large in the recycling business called Schnitzer Steel. Okay. So, yep, I know them. He partnered with Schnitzer in 97. They bought 50% of our company. And uh, bought my grandfather out of the business. So my dad owned 50%, Schnitzer owned 50%. And that kind of started the relationship with those guys, which would be like when I was in my early high school years. And so when I came back in 2004, after I went to college, 
it was, you know, we had around that same 20-ish employees. My dad had expanded a little bit. We had we had a little pipe company. We had two locations at that point, you know, a little feeder yard and a, a yard in Caldwell, Idaho, our, our main, our first yard. And then my dad had kind of got really heavily into, more heavily into the trucking business. So he had started a brokerage and we had a handful of trucks at that point to kind of move okay. our scrap and, and backhaul lumber products off of the, the West Coast in okay. Idaho. So... That's and kind they, of the, the that's how it started. And so, does Schnitzer still uh, have ownership in the company? No, they do not. In 2014 and 15, the market, the scrap market, commodities markets in general got hammered. It was a pretty tough year. 15, 14 was tough. 15 was really tough. Schnitzer was basically came to us, and we've been partners, you know, going on close to 20 years at that point. And they basically just said, hey, you know, we've kind of reached a point. We had grown. We'd added some locations through the, throughout the partnership. And they kind of basically were like, hey, you guys are losing money. And we're ready to. And in, in their defense, you know, they were kind of, they also looked at me and I was kind of trying to grow. And I was kind of had a kind of a ceiling on me because I couldn't really do a lot, you know, being only a 50% owner. Mm-hmm. And my dad was burned out of being partners with a big publicly traded company. And so it was basically like, you know, you buy us out or we buy you out type of deal. And okay. my dad kind of my dad kind of looked at me and he goes, you'll never get them bought out. He goes, you'll never get through the process. And I said, oh, just I the wrong thing to yeah. tell Brett, right? Yeah, can't exactly. Yeah. Um, so he, he, he kind of I think my dad's kind of smart that way, you know, He's not a college educated man, but he's a street educated man. He's a people guy. And so he, I think he knew what to tell me to say, yeah. Hey, if you want it, you know, if you want it, here's your chance, you know? And so he kind of motivated me to kind of figure out a way. It took me about a year of myself and my CFO, Brian Ferguson. We started, we said, all right, we went through the math and we said, we think we can make this pencil. And we went through the process of trying to buy out a publicly traded company out of our, you know, little mom and pop scrap company. And wow, that's um, we got it a done. story. I've, I don't think I've ever, I mean, I'm sure you're not the first one, but I just hadn't met somebody who's been through that. So did it start with like, did, did they just give a number and say, here's the number we'll either buy you at that price or you can buy us or how did, yeah, it was go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. It was, it, it was kind of, in 1997, when my dad partnered with them, it was a, uh, it was not a publicly traded company in 97. They became publicly traded, I think, 99 or 2000 or something like that. They were still pretty okay. good size company, but they weren't quite publicly traded. So the operating agreement at that time was like a simple, you know, five-page document, you know, compared mm-hmm. to if you did business with a publicly traded company today and, and took, they took sure. ownership and you're looking at a, you know, a, a book. Right. 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 Um, so, but in the operating agreement, the, basically the way it was set up was, you know, if, if at some point, if we agree that we don't want to be partners anymore, it's, it's kind of a, whoever you put a number on the table. And if we don't like, if we don't like that number, then basically you're telling us what you're willing to sell your 50%. We're kind of like a Russian roulette style. Yeah. Um, I think the technical breakup, term is, right? I think it's called a shotgun clause is what I think it might yeah. be called. 
Hey. There was like some sort of smart person term for it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, so they so put I'm, the number, so, they put the number on the table first. No, that you, they did it. Okay. They did okay. it, which is, you know, we, they have the president of the metals recycling side is Mike Henderson. And him and I had developed a relationship over the years, along with a guy by the name of Mike Kirschman. And, you know, they knew that was kind of a rough way to negotiate an exit because mm-hmm. they still wanted to do business with us. We still wanted to do business with them. And so it was like, hey, we don't have to do it this way, right? Like it's in the contract that way, but we can both agree as partners that we would prefer to try and negotiate something that we can both live with that's, you know, fair for both sides and keep the relationship. And I knew it was important for me to keep the relationship because just like anything, you know, relationships are important. So, you know, we kind of, we put some numbers together. They put some numbers together and we just kind of, found a middle ground that we could both live with and you know where nobody was really getting the lion's share of the deal and it was you know the market was still tough at that point and so it was like all right we can live with that they were you know they were ready to get out of the relationship we were ready to move on and it was a mutual agreement where both sides kind of felt it was going to work and that's the way it was negotiated we we they're still one of our main consumers one Mm -hmm. of our largest consumers so we were able to successfully, you know, maintain that relationship. And, you know, it's, for me, it was a, you know, it was a pretty monumental deal because the same year I bought my parents out or retired my parents and was able to let them go live their life. And wow, that's a, that's a great story. I imagine that was kind of a harrowing time because I'm guessing you didn't just have uh, some money stuck away in a bank account that you could write a check to Schnitzer and write a check to your parents. I'm, I'm, I imagine. No, and the way that I structured my parents is different than I structured it with Schnitzer. Sure. Essentially, with Schnitzer, we had we had accumulated enough assets over the years. I'm not a big spender on bullshit. I guess mm-hmm. um, we've always reinvested. You know, I, my parents taught me well, I believe. But you know, you're in, you, whatever you can reinvest it. And so we, we had enough assets that we were able to go to the bank and we, you know, even though the, the market was tough and, you know, the P&L wasn't beautiful by any stretch of the imagination, our balance sheet was exceptionally strong. So the banks were willing to loan off, you know, assets just because we had accumulated enough mm-hmm. assets over the years, high quality assets that were bankable. Okay. And so it wasn't necessarily, oh, you guys are projected for a lot of growth. It, it was kind of a, a deal with the bank that they're like, well, if you guys do go under, you got enough shit to cover your bills, you know? Okay. So. Oh, well, that worked well. And then with your parents, you did, I guess, some kind of a, my parents, of a buyout yeah, over time. Yeah. We kind of developed a family trust and kind of have moved some stuff around and basically to give them the latitude they needed to, to go live their life and need the latitude I needed to run the business and continue to grow up. Now that Was that 2016, you said? 2016. So let's fast forward six years. It sounds like the company has grown some. I don't need to know like your you know, exact revenue growth or income growth, but could we use like another proxy? I think you've added some locations, maybe employees. Mm-hmm. So what, how might you characterize like your growth percentage since you bought it? Have you guys doubled? Is it a 50% growth? Is it more yeah, than a doubling? 
I think it's, you know, from a revenue side, from a, you know, profitability side, you know, from employee side, it's, you know, we're close to double for sure. You know, we've added, you know, some other revenue streams that have really helped our, helped our business. You know, sometimes I don't, I'm, I would never sit here and tell you I'm some great business guy. Um, Sometimes just timing works in your favor as well. You know, there's a fair amount of luck, I think, in business. It's not all skill. And I think, you know, you put yourself in a position to be successful and are you a position to be lucky, if, you know, quote unquote, yep. you know, by putting yourself out there. And, and then sometimes the stars align, sometimes they don't. And in our situation, you know, 2000 um 16 came along, you know, Trump got elected, the markets turned, and it actually worked out very positively for us, right, financially, that the mm-hmm. markets turned. I mean, nobody knew going into that election that, I mean, I was, I would have bet my house that Hillary Clinton was going to get elected and we were going to, you know, you know, suffer <laughs> through some pretty tough years on the, on the sure. recycling and the, you know, scrap end and, you know. That you, that every, you know, whatever the history is, what it is, things change that, you know, Trump won, the market took off, you know, the, the commodities businesses performed pretty well, you know, for a couple of years, fairly strongly and enabled us to, you know, look like we were really smart, I guess. Sure. And then, and then even in the last year and a half, you look even smarter, right? I mean, if your business yeah. is like that of our other scrap clients, 2021 was likely a, a very good year. For sure. For sure. If you're able to kind of, you know, keep the wheels on the bus through COVID and keep employees and keep your things, keep things moving, then you definitely, I don't think, you know, if you didn't make money in the uh, scrap industry last year, then you need to go find something <laughs> different to do. Sure. <laughs> you're, you're not, you're not going <laughs> to, you're going to have a hard time when this thing actually turns rough. Sure. Now, you know, it's interesting about half my clients are not in the scrap business. They're in other manufacturing businesses. And the last few months, one of the big issues they've had is raising prices, right? Because of inflation. Mm -hmm. And they really have struggled with how you present that to your customer. Do you just blame it on inflation? Do you try to, you know, point out another value proposition? And it seems like that's one of the benefits that the our scrap clients have is that you're in the you know pricing fluctuates every day automatically right on the buy side mm-hmm. and the sell side. So your customer and I do you have do you buy over the scale also? Do you have? Yeah. Yep. So those yeah, folks are used. Home. Yeah. So they're used to the price changing regularly, right? And so mm-hmm. it seems like one of the nice thing about things about the scrap business during an inflationary time is one, the your pricing adjustments just happen automatically, and two, you're dealing with hard assets. So it seems like those are a couple things that in an inflationary environment, it would seem like would benefit the scrap business over a kind of a traditional manufactured business. But that's just my thoughts. What do you think of that? Do you think that's accurate or am I missing something? You know, I've had a lot of success in my, and for on in li- living off of this kind of a little piece of advice my dad gave me. He said, Brett, if you're buying all the scrap, you're paying too much, right? Ah. So, 
and so I, I, I and, and which is just a scrap term, but you can really, I've always kind of put it to all of our businesses, right? Like we have mm-hmm. a corrugated steel pipe business. And I said, if you never miss a bid, then your price is too low. Oh, um, sure. See, cause I mean, ultimately I don't want to buy it all because that means I'm paying too much. If I don't want to sell it all, because that means I'm not charging enough. And so hmm. I think a person needs to figure out that sweet spot for their business and decide, do you want to be Walmart, low price, high volume? Do you want to be, you know, target, maybe higher margins, less volume. But once you pick a lane, you kind of have to go and stay in that lane. You can't be high volume and high margin, right? It's just not going to work. And for business owners, I think they get caught in that trap of, well, I don't want to lose business. Well, sometimes if you lose that low margin business, you're better off because it frees up time and opportunity. If you're a high margin, you know, company that, you know, you want, you know, less business, but high margin, well then get rid of that, shed that low margin business and go look for the high margin business. But you got to have time to be able to do that. you You don't have that time if you're over here focused on, I'm scared to raise my price. Well, at some point, you know, you have to just, Pick, the, pick your price, say, this is what I need, this is where I need to be. And if it doesn't work for you, Mr. Customer, I 100% understand and leave the, the situation on the best terms as absolute possible and go looking for someone that it does. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes less is more and it doesn't feel like it initially, but it can be more, you know, if you just focus on that piece of it. No, I, that's, that's great advice. And thank you for that clarification. I really hadn't thought about that nuance of if you're buying all this, that there's still pricing decisions to be made, but it's not necessarily inflationary driven. It's just part of the inherent part of the business that if you're buying all the scrap, you're, you're paying too much. And if you're selling everything, that means you're charging too low. So, Thank you for that, for that clarification. So this reminds me of a story. So, you know, our clients, you know, we help, you know, companies who export and, you know, about half of them are in the scrap metal business. And through that relationship, there's a program called the IC disc that we help them with. And we help them year after year. It's very specialized. Their CPA doesn't usually know much about it. They don't want to know much about it. And so we end up having dealings like oftentimes with their other advisors, their attorney, their CPA firm, their bank. And I have a, this reminds me of what I thought was a hilarious story. This one scrap uh, client we have on the East Coast in like 2015, 16, when business was kind of tough, their CPA came in and said, you know, your margins are just terrible. You're not making much money. I think I can help you. Just if you just listen to me and do what I say, I think I can help you. And he goes, Hey, that's great. What's your advice? And he said, It's pretty, it seems pretty simple, but you should pay less for your scrap and charge more for it when you sell it. That'll help your margins. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm surprised he didn't fire the CPA on the spot. I think he would have, but his partner. I I like, I mean, great advice. Yeah. You've got to. You know, it's uh you wish you'd you thought know, of it. I, wish you'd thought of it, right? Just think <laughs> of all the how much more money you could have made. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So 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 I'd like to talk just a bit more about the different 
businesses you have because you know on the surface you know I, I think the definition of a commodity is something like you know it's fungible there are no differentiation and thus a company has little ability to impact pricing because you know it is a commodity it's hard to demonstrate additional value add but i think based mm-hmm. on your prior comment that it sounds like you are able to differentiate what you do to some degree. So why don't you first just tell me about all the different businesses that now uh, make up the empire, if you will. You know, ultimately, like we're in the, we've preached it to our guys, like we're in the customer service business, right? So like, I'm not in the scrap business. I'm not in the pipe business. Like I'm like, we win only if we take care of our customer. Um, and and essentially that starts with basically starts with our employees then it moves to the customer and then out from there. Cause if you don't have anybody to take care of your customer, then it doesn't really matter to begin with. So, I mean, ultimately we've everything that we've built and branched off doing is just one more exercise or effort to take care of our customers. And just, just as an example, say we started here this year, a company called tire reclaim. So okay. we there's no in real big inherent value in recycling tires today. You know, there's some different uses for them, whether it's for fuel at cement kilns or for aggregate, you know, on some certain projects once you've shredded them. But it's really still a waste stream. We inherently, because we have seven, seven scrap yards, some auto salvages, we are a generator of tires. So we basically sure. went about solving our own problem of tires and said, okay, well, if we're facing this problem, we've got a slew of customers that are facing a similar problem, right? Because we deal mm-hmm. with a lot of manufacturing companies, a lot of farmers, ag guys that are, you know, they're getting rid of old combines or whatever, and they've got these tires. And so these guys yep. have piles of tires. And so we just said, okay, well, we're, we have a problem, which means other people probably have a problem. So let's figure out how to solve it, right? And so mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a way that we could give our customers some value that maybe very limited people could. So we went about starting Tire Reclaim. So Tire Reclaim is one of them. Copper Reclaim, we have a mo- we do you know mobile copper pickups for electricians, contractors, demolition sites. We do we have a converter Reclaim, which is a, a business that we buy catalytic converters all over Mm -hmm. the country, Canada and Mexico. But the core of our business really is our scrap metal recycling company. We have a wholesale corrugated steel pipe company, and then we have a trucking company are are kind of the the core, you know, I say the meat and and potatoes of what puts food on everybody is on on our table. Okay. Everything else is for now, as these other entities become, more core to what we do every day. Um, you know, for now they're the dessert, they're the appetizer, you know, they're the, the rolls on the table. They're part sure. of it, you know, but we still, you know, I feel like you ha- still have to have your kind of meat and potatoes of, of what you do. Sure. And I, so I think to summarize it, I think maybe a way to say it is that over time, because of your customer service focus, it, as you saw, 
you know, pain points for customer customers, you develop solutions for that. And so like one example you gave was like for electricians, every electrician I've ever met, their process for recycling wire is they just, you know, throw it in the back of their, their truck until it gets full and then they drive it to a scrapyard. And, right. but it sounds like you've tried to make that a little bit easier for them by putting a bin at their location, saving the trip to the scrapyard. Is that right? A hundred percent. Or even one step more, we actually have a mobile truck that has a scale on the back of a van. Really? We'll go to the job site. We'll put the material on the scale right there, write them a, t- write them a receipt and pay them right there. So if, at the end of the day or the end of a job or whatever, you know, whatever, you know, depends on every customer is different, right? But we've just scaled our business, trying to make it as easy on the customer as 100% possible. So like whatever, whatever creates an opportunity that we see out there, like, okay, we don't want you to have to make a decision what scrapyard to haul that copy to. Just call us and we'll come pick it up, right? We'll pick it up right from the job site. And it's those decisions that, you know, we've really kind of had these internal discussions is what opportunities lie out there that are going to make it easier for your customer and more conducive to business? Because it's not about price. At some point, people value time more than they value price, right? It's it's Mm -hmm. strictly become a time and a convenience game. And if you can provide a good price, but you win on convenience and time and customer service, then I feel like you're, you've got a, a much larger shot at the business than you do just throwing a big number and hoping that they bring mm-hmm. it. Well, and when you think about it, I mean, I find it so interesting, these different things you're doing, because, I mean, we don't work with every scrapyard in the country, but, you know, we work with a, a decent number. And some of the things you're talking about, I mean, a really, or I mean, now some of them may be doing it and I just don't know it, but my sense is the way you approach it is uh, somewhat uh, unique or cutting edge in the industry. And what you've also done in business, I think you could say you've decommoditized the product because right for that electrician example, you know, they just throw it in the back of their truck, they drive around, then eventually they go take it someplace and they get, you know, X amount per pound. But there's risk to that, right? I mean, you know, they run the risk that in the meantime, somebody steals it out of their truck and they have the hassle factor and they have to remember to do it where, I mean, obviously you all are paying them less per pound. I shouldn't say, obviously, I'm guessing you pay them less per pound when you come pick it up for them. But at the end of the day, the money they make selling their their wire is really just kind of gravy for them, right? It, it, it buys them, you know, some lunches and, you know, some beer after work. And so the fact that you're paying them, you know, some, you know, lower amount, I would argue that's insignificant to them in the grand scheme of things. Like if you were selling them brand new wire, they might be more price sensitive on it. But, mm-hmm. uh, but that's just, that's really, really interesting. And you now become, like their solution, right? They don't think of it as they have this commodity that they need to maximize their revenue on. They think of it as we have this hassle of this extra wire that we know has value. And what we really want is just, we want to not think about it and just periodically have somebody show up and and give us some money. Is that about right? I think, 
hundred percent. It goes back to the original question you asked me is, you know, you have clients that are wondering how do they bring it up to their customers that they need to raise pricing. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. and it becomes like, it, there's always going to be consumers or customers that are price sensitive. Like, there's a reason sure. why Walmart exists, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they are low price, high volume, like Costco, right? Costco doesn't make their money on selling you food. I mean, anybody that's ever done that studied Costco, I mean, they make their money on the memberships and yep. driving the the volume, uh, driving volume on the, those food items. And a lot of them, they're not they're losing money on certain items and mm -hmm. and making it back on other items. Which isn't which is similar to the scrap game, but the reality is they're making most of their money, the lion's share of their money, on their membership, yeah, and their Kirkland Signature brand. Which the only reason they, they they were able to develop a Kirkland Signature brand is by years and years of collecting data to to, to figure out which mm -hmm. product they can make or or have a a manufacturer make and rebrand it as Kirkland and set it right beside their own product. And just get sell through volume. Well, mm -hmm. it's still the, it's it's the customer service. It's them taking care of their customers and providing them the price. But I say that you know, for everybody that's a member of Costco or a Sam's Club or whatever, there's still a lot of people that shop at you know over here. They're Fred Meyer's or you know a Target. Right. You know, more a more expensive place that's convenient because it's close to their house. It's easy to get in and out of. It's not parking a mile away from the store mm -hmm. to walk in with a huge grocery cart and buy, you know, a hundred pairs of socks. Right. It's, you know, I mean, it's, there's a many different ways to, to skin the cat. And I'm not saying that ours is right. I'm just saying that's what works for us. And what we've found, you know, to be good for our business is you can't be everything to everybody. You can be really good at a few things. And just be really good at a few things. And one of ours is just service. And service isn't cheap. It's not free. And we, you know, our customers know that. But we basically just say, if you can out-service us and out-pay us, good luck. You have to be right. your own game, you know. Right. But you better be damn good at service if you're not going to pay the highest price. Because if you're shitty at both, you're going to go out of business. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that is really cool. So the last thing I want to talk about with your business, I can't believe how the time has flown before we get to the podcast is I believe you have another service that you're close to launching using some of using some maybe excess capacity in real estate. Is that something that's public you know, knowledge enough that you want to talk about it? Or is it premature to talk about that? No, you can talk are you talking about the storage side? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, one hundred percent. So so tell me about that and how it ended up coming to be. Because I think it's a great so we, example of really thinking outside the box. Yeah, I think we have because of what we do, there's facilities we bought, property we bought over the years, whether it was an investment opportunity or, you know, excess property and we needed a certain location for one of our businesses. We just had property that was available in good, decent traffic locations, and we were either going to offload it, you know, sell it and do something different, or we were kind of trying to figure out, you know, what would be a good opportunity for us. So basically what we've done is we created a, you know, we went through, we said the storage market is pretty strong. It's more of a long-term play. 
So storage, meaning for us, covered RV boat storage, then also larger scale storage units. So okay. it goes back to basically differentiation. We are not interested in being the mini storage company. We sure. are, you know, we basically are big units, you know, covered RV, large drive aisles, you know, larger units. And basically, go like that's how we are have differentiated our storage company is, you know, our prices are going to be a little bit higher, but our buildings are going to be nicer and our space, you know, we're not here trying to, you know, maximize the say per square foot on the build out because dirt that would land right. that, we've already, that we already own. So we're able to, you know, build bigger units. We're able to provide, you know, just a different product, you know, than necessarily what's out there. You know, where yeah. many storage companies are, you know, driving, you know, cost per unit, cost per square foot and trying to, you know, make that deal pencil with, you know, with, with increased property prices, increased steel prices. And yeah, and they think they, once again, they think they have to capture every rental unit customer as opposed to your concept of you're not trying to do it. So I'm curious, did you do any formal market research? Do you have an RV that you need to place the store? Did you have some friends that had RVs? Did you read an article in a magazine? Or did you just wake <laughs> up one day and just say, you know, I have this gut feeling. Let's go do yeah, it. Yeah. Well, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just like an, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, right? Like I just look, I'm just always curious what people are doing, whether it's a restaurant business, like what, how are they making money? What are they doing? Like what's their strategy or, a, you know, a mechanic shop or a whatever. I'm just, I'm super interested in business. Like what makes their world go around and why are they doing what they're doing? And so I was kind of paying attention to the storage side. And what really came up to be 100% honest is we had a guy that was our banker and a younger guy, you know, 30, early thirties, smart guy, just a super good guy. And we were trying to, we wanted to hire him and he was more interested on the property development side. And, okay. uh, and so I was talking to my CFO one day and, and he was, my CFO was a smart guy. And he's like, man, we, we need to hire this guy. And I'm like, I know I want to hire him, but we got to find something for him to do. Like, I mean, sure. he do so much, you know, there's only so much accounting. Yeah. You don't want him. And yeah. And you don't planning. And you're not going to hire him to operate a grappler, right? That's probably not yeah, exactly. fit for his skill yeah. set. And so we were kind of, you know, I was chewing on this whole storage. Like, oh, I wonder how we could do this. What makes sense? And then, I, I, I said, oh, I showed up one day and I'm like, all right, I got it. And and, and, he, and so him, uh, Brian Ferguson, our CFO, him and I were talking and I'm like, let's hire Casey and let's have him build storage units. And so we met with them. We're like, hey, this is our, you know, we got all these, you know, different properties. You know, we have the ability to buy the steel right and for the buildings, we already own the dirt. And, and, and we basically pitched him on like, hey, what do you, if you're interested in property development, then... You know, obviously, we, he helps us on the financial arm as far as from the banking side, because that's mm-hmm. kind of his background, his wheelhouse. He's also a CPA. Sure. And we said, you're in a prime position to be able to get these projects funded, depending on how much funding we need. Plus, it's an interest you have, and we like you as a human. You're just a good person. And he was like, let's do it. And so it was more of like, we found a good guy, and we're like, what can that guy do? 
to come what a help great, us. What a great story. And so it's so, so kind of reverse like, engineered it. Like, yeah, you know, no, versus I, having a business, we found a good person and we said, why don't you just go build this shit? Yeah. So in essence, do you think of him as sort of like, if you think of that storage as like another division, that he's sort of like the division manager for that? So is he, is yeah, he in 100%. essence, does he, does he have him, like a P&L? Does he have like a yeah, P&L yeah. for that division? And we let him buy into the, we let him, you know, it's, we basically said, hey, we can't pay you what the bank's going to pay you, but we'll give you equity into the facilities. Oh, wow. And basically just said, you make this thing pencil, you make it actually generate a buck. That's money in your pocket. It's money in our pocket. And it basically, it gives us another, goes back to, you know, making and, and building yourself a strong balance sheet, right? Because mm-hmm. that's kind of your war chest. In the commodities business, it's a it's an inherently tough business or a great business, right? There's really it's, it, there's no really middle ground. It's either you're killing it or you're getting killed. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have to build a war chest of assets, and not just you know some equipment, but like really truly bankable assets that if you ever get into a sticky spot or if you ever you know the market takes a crap. And you've got really good assets. Now you can leverage those assets and take advantage of somebody that maybe hadn't financially planned as well, right? With their mm-hmm. facility or their company, we've made our best deals when the market is shit, not when the market is good. Right. So it's been important for us to say, okay, go build the asset war chest so that when the opportunity arises, like we're in a position to strike. And so that yeah. was kind of the, you know, the, one of the main reasons of doing it. We had the property. It made sense. We've had the right guy. Now it's like, okay, it's a long-term play, but if we build these, if we, if we build these facilities, you know, we generate, it's a, a revenue generator once you get them mm-hmm. um, full. And then you actually now have a really bankable asset that yep. you can use to leverage into other, you know, opportunities. Yeah. So, so just one follow-up question there to, to be clear. So you're saying that his equity participation is just in the self-storage division, Correct. right? Yeah. So what yeah. a wonderful opportunity for uh, a banker who has some entrepreneurial desires. I mean, what a great opportunity, right? I mean, he gets basically to have all the upside of being an entrepreneur and control and that, where you guys have have created the platform that doesn't take much, you know, he doesn't have to take a big leap of faith to go from being an employee to just an all in entrepreneur. And you guys have the win of you have a motivated guy who you probably don't have to spend much time overseeing him, right? Because he's got all the motivation for the thing to be profitable. So I, I love that. It was good. Yeah. And it was, and you know, the other thing about Casey too, is because we, you know, it, t- it takes a while to get these things through planning and zoning and get everything, you know, the boxes checked and then, you know, COVID hit and he ordered steel and everything's delayed and contractors and whatnot. But, you know, the last, probably you being on the financial side, you understand this as well as anybody, the last year, we basically, any sort of debt we had, we refinanced, right? And sure we went out and basically, you know, took advantage of, of dirt cheap interest rates on anything. Yeah. I said, I yeah. don't care what it is. Like 
we look at the note, make sure it's, you know, we're getting the best, you know, we combined some stuff and just cleaned everything up. And, uh, and Casey was a big part of that because of his banking experience, mm-hmm. right? So just taking a guy like that with, with experience that we didn't necessarily have in-house at the time, you know, while we were working through the storage projects, he was able to kind of help us get a lot of our financial stuff in order and get us really positioned well for, you know, rising interest rates or, you know, mm-hmm. other opportunities, arbitrage opportunities that are going to, you know, present themselves. So, yeah, you know, we're very happy to have him on the team. And, uh, That's a great story. You know, the other story I wanted to share, remember that CPA that had the brilliant advice for my client about how yeah. to increase yeah. his margins. <laughs> he had some other brilliant advice. So this particular client was very debt averse. He had no debt and he kept literally like $8 million of cash available. I mean, not you know physical currency, but in the bank, basically mm-hmm. just in a checking account. And once again, the CPA explained to him how stupid that was because he wasn't earning anything on it. And that, you know, if he put that in a, you know, diversified, you know, you know, stock portfolio, he could earn, you know, five, six, seven, eight, you know, whatever assumption you want to use. And that was a much smarter decision. And he was an idiot for just leaving his money like that. And once again, Mm -hmm. I think he would have fired him, except his partner really liked the CPA and his partner (laughs) wouldn't let him fire it. But so if you just had to guess, why would a scrap guy keep $8 million, you know, laying around as dry powder? If I had to guess? Yeah. Oh, because I mean, the same reason, I mean, most guys do is, you know, that eight, that 8 million might make you negative one or 2% today, but if the commodities fall off the side of the hill, you're going to be able to buy cheap shit and a lot. And so you're going to make, you know, you might make negative 1% this year, but you're going to make a hundred percent year two or three and average those out. And you're going to be a lot better. Very. Yep. You nailed it. What he, his strategy was, you know, he and his circles, it was known that he had large amounts of capital and, you know, we're talking like a $30 million a year scrapyard. Okay. So to give you some context. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the word was out that he had large amounts of, of liquid capital that he could deploy on a moment's notice on a phone call or a handshake. So as he described it, he said, Dave, he goes, yeah. So for 11 months out of the year, I have a negative, you know, negative real interest rate. He said, but because of that, I get opportunities, not just when the markets are bad, but just when somebody calls me because they have an opportunity and they don't have the cash for it, or they've gotten trouble and they need to dump something. And he said, when those opportunities come up, they don't say, Hey, can you go to your bank, borrow some money and come back in a week and buy this from me? Their conversation is usually at 10 in the morning. They say, Hey, I'm in a bad, I'm in a bad spot. I'll cut you a great deal if you can pay me in two hours. And so, and then he has the patience to be able to then, you know, process, sit on that, do whatever. But uh, but anyway, that was the other brilliant advice by the, by the CPA. So, well, scrap guys are like, you know, business guys in general, right? I think that they have a mind for that. And it's the same reason I'm not a big stock investor is 
I, I try and operate in areas that I'm, that I feel like I have a strategic advantage, right? Is strategic advantage. I mean, I have to be able to provide some advantage that says whoever I'm going to compete against does not have. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, it, and if it's cash, then it's cash. If it's, you know, I, I own some property, so it's easier for me to put up a, you know, a storage facility than the next guy who's got to go get a loan for the dirt and the steel right. and the, you know, like I try and find a, a, an inherent advantage that we have that maybe the next guy is, you know, he's going to have to kind of come to the table with a lot more than what I already have in house. Mm-hmm. And so that makes a hundred percent sense why that, why your uh, client <laughs> is doing what he's doing. Sure. So no, well, hey, I could just talk to you all day about your business philosophies because I really find it just very intriguing and impressive just how many opportunities you've capitalized on. But we probably should talk a little bit about the podcast. So talk to me about the podcast. What's the name of it? Why did you start it? Do you enjoy doing it? So let's start with the name. What's the name of it? So we... Like I'll give, I'll just check it. I'll try and give you the Cliff Notes version. My very first podcast was a podcast called Reline Unknown, and I was very against putting myself out there. I was just kind of operating in the shadows, just doing what I was doing. And I had a guy, John Sacco from Sierra, come hit me up and say, "Hey, I want to put you on my podcast." And I was like, "No, I'm good." Because you like to just to be clear, you flying below the radar screen. Yeah, I just was kind of in my little world over here in Idaho, just doing my thing, and I, I didn't want to bring and, and you didn't want to bring a lot of attention to yourself, right? Because you don't want somebody to go, "Oh my God, it sounds like Idaho's a great market." You know, we need to go open a location there, right? Was that kind yeah, of it, thinking? Well, yeah. I, at that point, I was playing. I, I was I caught myself playing defense instead of offense, and. I'm like, why am I playing defense? Like, I'm we're damn good at what we do, you know. I'm like, you got to beat us at our own game if you're going to beat us. And so, I'm like, I'm going to go play offense. So essentially, that's why I started the podcast. John talked me into doing a, his podcast, so I did it, and I was like, oh, this isn't bad. And so then I had just bought a company in outside of Indianapolis, Indiana, um, and it was it was a company that we relined. Um, existing corrugated steel pipe under the freeways, under okay. under railroad, you name it. Like p- people that didn't want to tear out an existing culvert and they wanted to reline it with, mm-hmm. and you know make it cost effective. So I was like, it was it's a very relatively new market, and within the last say twenty years, we had a new product. We had one competitor, and I was like, let's just start a let's just start a podcast where we go around and, and interview people that are either relining or that are engineers and because we had basically bought a company that had closed up shop had to get the manufacturing fired back up and go find dealers for this pipe that we were manufacturing in indiana and so mm-hmm. in order to bring awareness i'm like let's start a podcast and just start talking to people and start this, there's nobody doing it at the time and so we did and we just we traveled around we started talking to engineers started talking to you know people that were installing it we started talking to you know anybody that would talk to us about anything to do with reline and so that was my first podcast and as i you know we built that business up our we only had one competitor at the time they're a pretty large outfit they approached us and said hey what do you guys think about 
getting bought out, you know, selling this business to us. And my wife was getting tired of me traveling as much as I was, you know, the Midwest and the East coast and the South. And she's like, really, do you need another business? And I'm like, I mean, <laughs> no, I don't need it, but it was. So anyways, I sold the business. And in that I had a, a gal that was working with us at the time. I pretty much turned the podcast over to her and said, run with it. And then I started a scrap life podcast which is more in my wheelhouse and it's basically revolves around people in the scrap metal recycling industry i i love it and i really enjoyed the first episode where you interviewed your parents and kind of got yeah. the backstory i mean that was really cool just to to hear that because you could tell that some of those conversations you maybe never had like specifically right you just had tangential conversations around the history and different things. So that was pretty cool. So, but what's the motivation? Like, is your goal to be like a top 10 podcast and make a million dollars a year selling advertising revenue? Is it just kind of something that you like doing for fun? What's, is there a strategic purpose for it or is it just something for fun? You know, it's, I I look at it as, I mean, I love what I do, right? I get to talk to people. Like the, the reason I do the podcast is probably twofold is a, I'm super proud of what my team and people that we put together over the years has built. So I'm, I'm very like, I've become more of like an offensive player versus defense, right? Like I'm like, hey, look at us. Look what we're doing. Like these guys are doing it and gals are doing it every day. Like they're killing it, you know? But on the flip side of that is I enjoy talking to other people that are out there doing the same thing like and not by the same thing like that we're doing every day but just that are out there killing it in their perspective whether they're the owner the operator the buyer the you know whatever they're doing that really have an appreciation for our industry which is the you know the scrap metal recycling industry and that are just interested in kind of helping themselves create a network mm-hmm. and i heard somebody say it one time and i really taken it to heart and they you know like the world is abundant, right? So if you're successful, that's not taking food off my plate. Like that's right. actually, that's actually, you know, good. I mean, it's good for our industry that you are successful. So I want to, A, surround myself by other successful people. And B, I want to celebrate your success because that's not taking away from my success. Mm-hmm. So the podcast gives me the opportunity to do that. It gives me an opportunity to, to, you know, talk to them about what made them successful. Maybe I'll glean a couple, you know, lessons or tips or whatever from it and kind of go from there. I love it. That's, that is great. What, I think you kind of touched on it. If you could just summarize it like to one thing or two things, like what's the best thing about having a podcast? Like what comes to mind is just like, if you just had to summarize it, like what's the best thing about it? I love hearing people's stories and talking to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love, you know, like talking to people, other people in our industry and just hearing how they, what I'm a big documentary. I used to love reading uh, biographies. That was kind of my my style of books growing Mm -hmm. up. So the podcast is just another form of reading a, a biography or watching a documentary, right? It's just a, Hey, you Joe blow, tell me your story and tell me how you got here and tell me, you know, what you do or how you did it. Like, 
that to me is cool. And you don't have to be some famous fucking person. I don't really care. Like just be, have been successful at whatever it was that you've done. And I want to hear the story because mm-hmm. it's interesting to me. Yeah. You know, it's so funny that I just, I, I feel like you're like a, a younger brother I never had. I'm the same way. <laughs> I love biographies because it's like, I mean, you know, when you read a biography of Benjamin Franklin, it's like you're sitting down and he's distilled to you like his life, you know, lessons across his life. And that insight just is amazing. And I also like, you know, documentaries for that uh, same reason. And I, and your answer on the podcast is similar to mine. I say that I like to give a, I like to provide a gift to a successful entrepreneur by giving them a platform to tell their story. And that's really yeah, that's how I think point. of it. Then that's how I think of it. And it's great because you do learn stuff. And um, like we have a client who sold a business, not in the scrap business. He sold it about five years ago, you know, really great exit. And, uh, and he's late sixties. And I really told his whole story. He's got two kids, some grandkids. And they were saying when they listened to that podcast, they learned stuff about their dad. They didn't even know about from his story because it's just a unique platform. You know, when you sit down and have a beer with somebody, it's not really appropriate to, to talk about yourself the whole hour, but it is okay when you're a guest on a podcast. And, and, and I just, and that client and good friend, he just died a couple of weeks ago. And one of his grandchildren was like two, three years old. And, and his other son doesn't have any kids yet. And so I was thinking, how cool is that going to be that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when they say, hey, what was grandpa like? And they're like, hey, I'll tell you what he's like. You know, here's the podcast. You know, Let's fire it up while we drive to your baseball game. Like, isn't no, that just a one cool of the thing? Why, 100%. I love it. And that's the same reason why I want to interview my parents, right? For my episode number one. Mm-hmm. Um, I had done a few podcasts, obviously, for the Reline side. So I felt a little more comfortable in the interview process. So I'm like, okay, I said, you guys are going to be my first podcast for this for scrap life. And I said, and I'm just going to ask you a question. I said, you know, we actually, what we did is we got a couple bottles of wine and we just sat at the table and we poured wine and we just, we, I did the podcast. We drank a few glasses of wine and I just asked him questions and told the story. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and I did that for myself, but I did that for my, my, my kids to know, you know, here's how it happened. And I don't have any preconceived notions about what, whether my kids are going to be in the business or not. Like, I don't really care. Honestly, mm-hmm. like, I ain't going to give it to them. So right. it don't really matter. Like, they're going to have to either, just, they're going to have to go work for it like I did or go do something different. And I'm, I'm, I would just assume them go do something different has come to work for me, you know, it, unless they just love it, you know, if they love it like I did, then by all means, let's, let's go. But if you don't go find something you love, because I'm not going to give you shit. Um, <laughs> and, and good for you. And I, and just cause I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to ruin you. Like life is too good. If you earn it and that good feeling you have down in your stomach that you earn something like it just takes the food tastes better when you bought it the car drives smoother when you're the one that making the payment, the house yeah. feels more, more homey when you're the one that bought it, you know? And I don't care what anybody says. 
Like I 1000% believe that. And if my kids aren't going to get a free ride, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. Well, that is, that's awesome. So as we're kind of wrapping up, what, what do you wish you knew when you started podcasting and what might you've done any differently if you knew then what you know now? Equipment, like, <laughs> like basic stuff. What would make the best microphone? What's the best, you know, cause podcasting is so audio driven, obviously. Right. That, you know, it, if you have a good audio and you can and do it, then it, it's a little clearer on the other end. And then basically find something that you're don't just do a podcast. Cause that's the thing to do. Like find something you're super passionate about and then find other people that are passionate about that topic. And they're, cause they're going to give you the best interview. Mm-hmm. They're interested, you know, they're not, it's not, you're not forcing them to do it. Now I haven't listened to, to, to very many of your episodes Your I listened to your parents episode and then kind of dabbled in a couple others. I'm just curious, are your guests all folks who are involved in the processing of scrap or do you ever have guests that do things that are kind of tangential to the business, like, you know, a company that sells equipment or that provides, you know, specializes in insurance for the scrap business. I'm just curious. No, I've had like uh, the guy that is the president of the, you know, the Recycling Today magazine, Jim. Yeah. So I've had him on there and asked him because he has a different viewpoint of the recycling industry than say an operator or an owner. I've mm-hmm. had I've had the gal that runs our two Eastern Idaho locations. Her name is Amy, and just to give a woman's in, women in scraps point of view, who's kind of came up through the ranks and and you know what's her day to day like? What was her story? How did she go from just you know living in Burley, Idaho, to becoming you know the manager of two facilities? And what's her perspective? So yeah, I kind of I try and vary it enough to to just you know keep it interesting does that make sense no that does that does make sense well i cannot believe we're already over an hour so why don't we wrap up is there anything we didn't talk about that you think we should have no i think we covered the bases and i just wanted to tell you thank you for giving me an opportunity and hopefully it went as expected it absolutely did. I, I really appreciate your time. I really enjoy the story. And I look forward to having a chance to meet you in person in, uh, in Vegas in a couple of weeks. I'll follow up separately you know, to get something on the calendar. So All thanks right. again for taking the time. Really uh, love the story, love the insights, a lot of lessons to learn, not only for people in the scrap business, but even people not in the scrap business. I just really like what you've done. So Absolutely. Thanks. Great to talk to you. Likewise. Have a great day, Brett. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's ic-d-i-s-c-s-h-o-w.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.